Welcome to another episode of Emerging Environments. In this episode, we are speaking with Rick Smith, the president of the Canadian Climate Institute, formerly the Canadian Institute for Climate Choices. Rick has had a long career in environmental activism and spent many years as the executive director of Environmental Defence Canada. Prior to his time in environmental defence, Rick received his PhD from the University of Guelph, where he worked with the Cree community of Guelph Magustui in Nunavik to assess the status of a local seal population. He was also a prominent voice in the battle to develop Canada's Species at Risk Act. Rick has co-authored two books focused on the effects of environmental contaminants, a topic that we explore in detail in our conversation, focusing both on his role in raising awareness and lobbying for legislation. We also discuss the emergent crisis of microplastics and the lagging policy response to the issue. This episode was recorded in February, and we discuss Canada's forthcoming emissions reduction plan, which is now released, which lays out a roadmap for meeting Canada's target to cut emissions to 40 to 45 percent below 2005 levels by 2030. So we hope you enjoy our conversation with Rick Smith. So, Rick, it's great to have you with us today. Thanks so much for joining us. It's a pleasure to be here. Um, so, before we kind of jump into talking about your professional career and your, your new role with the Canadian Institute for Climate Choices, we wanted to hear a little bit about your career path. You know, where did you grow up and, and how did you become interested in environmental issues? Sure. Well, I think, I think like a lot of people, I... Uh, where I've wound up in my career wasn't entirely planned. Uh, I grew up in Montreal and, uh, and then in uh, suburban Toronto in Richmond Hill. And, uh, you know, I was always interested in, in, uh, in the natural world. I mean, my, my, um, I think we're having a COVID moment here. I don't know if you hear this very small dog uh, barking in, yeah, in yeah. my office, <laughs> barking through the wall. Um, and I was always interested in the, in the natural world. My, my, I uh, did a lot of canoe tripping in the Laurentians with my father growing up. And, uh, uh, you know, a love for nature was really my entree into the environmental space. So I, I got my uh, PhD in biology at the, in, at the University of Guelph, working on an endangered uh, species of uh, harbor seal. But I, you know, I quickly realized that being a forest ranger would mean living by yourself in the middle of the forest. And that, uh, that didn't sound great. Uh, and I, I, I quickly realized that, uh, that working directly on public policy, on policies that counted for environmental protection, that that's really what, what uh, interested me and excited me. So I, I, I started to work fairly quickly for nonprofit organizations. Uh, uh, first off, uh, an animal welfare and conservation uh, charity, and I've worked. I basically spent 25 years working for nonprofits and charities that try to uh, reconcile environmental priorities with economic priorities, and uh, and try to advance uh, environmental protection in our country. I'm very, I'm very fortunate at the moment to be uh, working at the Canadian Institute for Climate Choices, which is the biggest research outfit when it comes to uh, climate change. Not just carbon reduction, but uh, but adaptation uh, 
and clean growth policy in the country. So we have a fantastic, hardworking research team distributed right throughout the country. During your time as executive director of Environmental Defense Canada, you wrote extensively about pollutants and health. Um, for example, your book, Slow Death by Rubber Duck. Uh, so we were wondering if you could share your experience writing and researching that topic and, um, you know, talking about how, how that may have contributed to the campaign for um, regulation of things like BPA and that, and that sort of thing. Yeah. Yeah, I, I, you know, one of the challenges with pollution policy is how do you tell the story so that, so that people can wrap their arms around something that is literally invisible? How do you, you know, when it comes to, for instance, toxic pollutants, so these, you know, this huge assortment of literally tens of thousands of chemicals, uh, most of which have started into production since the end of the Second World War. You know, but these things have crazy unpronounceable names, uh, though they're ubiquitous in, in most consumer products that we use uh, every day. So uh, when, we, when I was in environmental defense and I was working with the, my co-author, Bruce Laurie, the challenge we had was, was to try to interest people in the pollution topic and, uh, and come up with ideas that, that, that convey that this is a solvable thing. You know, okay, yeah, we're, we're, we're surrounded by these uh, awful pollutants. The best available science tells us that it's uh, impairing the health of our kids and our families and our communities, but uh, it doesn't have to be this way. In fact, the, the solutions are, are, are readily available. So. At Environmental Defense, we started this, uh, this project called Toxic Nation, where we came up with this idea to start uh, using some of the newly available scientific testing techniques that were emerging at that time, but to that point had, had really been confined to university laboratories and, and, the, uh, and the academic, uh, uh, academic journals hadn't really broken out into, into popular culture yet. So we had this idea of challenging politicians in the country to submit their blood and urine for testing uh, for specific chemicals like BPA, like phthalates, like uh, polybrominated diphenyl ethers, uh, flame retardants. Uh, so we, we, what we tried to do was to literally directly engage politicians provincially, municipally, federally, in a conversation about the pollutants in their bodies and to invite them to think about what they could do as, as, as uh, elected decision makers to clean up those pollutants in their own bodies and protect Canadians from the health effects of these hormone disrupting, often carcinogenic pollutants. Uh, and that worked, that worked really well. I mean, we, we had, uh, you know, the conservative and federal environment ministers at the time, uh, the health minister enthusiastically participating at a time when the Harper government was, uh, you know, frankly, disinterested in moving on the climate change issue. They were, you know, you got to give them credit. They were very keen to, uh, to aggressively move uh, to clean up toxic pollution. Uh, Dalton McGuinty, was a good partner provincially in Ontario. And I'll, ne I'll never forget um, 
we had this great event that we called the baby rally uh, demanding a ban on BPA in, in plastic baby bottles. We actually assembled hundreds of babies and their moms in the lawn of Queens park. We made these little tiny popsicle stick pickets for, for the babies. Um, and we had a meeting with uh, McGinty and about a dozen of these uh, very eloquent moms and their babies in this dimly lit room in Queens Park. And it was just mayhem. I mean, the babies were crying and the moms were changing them on the tables. And McGinty was trying to look, you know, was trying to try, try to keep his, uh, try to look prime minister, you know, premier, premierly, if that's a word throughout right. and uh, try to keep his cool and, you know, kept getting interrupted by wailing babies and, and basically capitulated in that moment to, to say that, uh, yep, if the federal government didn't move to ban BPA and baby bottles, the provincial government would investigate ways to do that. Uh, and around that time, just a couple months later, the, Har the Harper government did move and Canada became the first country in the world to ban BPA and baby bottles. Mm -hmm. uh, John Baird, who was environment minister at that time, he later told me that he knew he needed to do something when he was in the produce aisle of his local grocery store and an irate mom accosted him and was quizzing him about what the hell he was going to do about BPA as he was trying to buy like cucumbers and, uh, and lettuce. And he, uh, you know, had to sort of politely try to sidle away from it. But he knew at that moment, like, Oh, like people actually care about this and they get it mm -hmm. and we need to do something. So, you know, coming out of that, uh, Bruce and I wrote a couple of books, including slow death by rubber duck, where, where we, we tested ourselves. We had this idea that we would, uh, you know, you sort of see my biological, my, my background as a biologist coming out, I, we, we had this idea that if we could pin down the pollutants in our own bodies, and not only that, show, show the impact of seemingly innocuous, mundane daily events on our personal pollution levels. So, you know, mm -hmm. we, we started testing ourselves over, over the period of a few weeks. You know, what happens to our blood levels of phthalates when we use certain types of soaps shaving creams, shampoos in the bathroom. What happens to our volatile organic chemical levels, our VOC levels, if we sit in a new car, breathing in the new car smell for six hours? Uh, so we did a series of experiments like this. And it, it, it turns out that we all carry around these complicated, unfortunately, poisonous internal environments in our, in our bodies that, that are affected quite dramatically and quite quickly by absorbing the chemicals in the consumer products we use every day. Uh, so we were able to show this over the course of a couple of books and that led to a series of other policy changes when it comes to uh, toxic chemicals. So, so the, it's a long answer to your question, but, <laughs> but, but the big lesson I took from all of this is that the challenge with the environmental discussion is to render these big issues tangible for people to connect them directly to people's daily lives. And when you can do that, uh, these, these uh, often seemingly intractable problems uh, will be solved rather quickly. It turns out the governments can move pretty quickly when, uh, when public demand is there. Yeah, that's an amazing point. It, it makes me think, you know, do you think there's, do you think that idea is 
is it possible to translate that into other issues that are maybe less associated with human health implications, something like biodiversity loss uh, or things of that nature where, you know, obviously there are, there are human health connections to biodiversity loss, but it's a bit more of an abstract issue. Yeah. I'm just thinking out loud here. It's that, that, but that's a key point I think is to, to bring it home to people's daily lives and it really makes things visible. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, this is, this is kind of, kind of an extension of, uh, you know, the famous political quote, uh, I think this was uh, Tip O'Neill, the longtime speaker of the U.S. House of Representatives. He's, he said, all politics is local. So you can extend that to, I think, any public policy issue. I mean, to the extent that people, people are busy, especially in an age of COVID, people are super stressed out, maxed out. And, you know, on, on, on the personal priority list, on the personal to-do list that we all wake up with every morning, stuff that affects us, our family, our community is top of the list and everything mm-hmm. else is a distant second. And like, you know, though, it, though we may notionally be concerned about sea turtles gobbling plastic garbage bags in the North Pacific, frankly, most of us are never going to see a sea turtle. And that's like somewhere way down the list. Mm-hmm. Uh, whereas if you can convey to people that uh, there are less monarch butterflies now, than there were when we were kids and that our, and that our children are going to, you know, that, that the, that the wildlife experiences of a lot of Canadian kids are going to be confined to uh, observing squirrels in the local park, you know, that starts to hit closer to home. I mean, I think there's a reason why uh, the Ford government, for instance, has a number of times taken a run at the Ontario Greenbelt and has had to back off rather quickly because it turns out that, uh, you know, especially in a rapidly urbanizing area like South, Southern Ontario, people are passionate about maintaining access to local green space, local agricultural land. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And they're not going to tolerate politicians rolling back those protections. So, so even, even when it comes to protected areas, biodiversity uh, protection, I think these lessons apply. How do we, how do we directly connect these questions to uh, the daily experiences of the majority of Canadians. Yeah, yeah, that's a great point. Um, I wanted to jump back to um, the topic of sort of self-experimentation, where you had done that previously um, with BPA and other environmental pollutants. And now you've, it seems like you have a lot of interest in uh, microplastics as yeah. this emergent topic where you've also been doing some self-experimentation there. Can you Can you tell us about that? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I I think microplastics is going to emerge quickly over the next few years uh, as as a major concern. Uh, It feels to me uh, like where uh, toxic pollutants, hormone disrupting pollutants were in the early 2000s when when scientific testing techniques all of a sudden started started, uh, demonstrating that not not only were there phthalates in sediments in Lake Ontario, they were actually in human breast milk. They were in our bloodstreams. They were in uh, they were in our our newly born kids, and that was a that was a game changer. I mean, the, when when it became clear that that class of pollutants weren't just kind of randomly floating out there in, in the world, and you know, however much it's a drag, uh, you know, in in bird eggs uh, and, and and other wildlife, when it became clear they were in us. Mm-hmm. 
and science was able to demonstrate that on a daily basis, that was, that was the game changer and, and led to a whole series of chemical pollutant reforms in Canada and around the world. That's resulted, by the way, in a, in a great news story. I mean, there's no question that, uh, that those types of consumer products, uh, kids' toys, uh, products we use in the kitchen, products we use in the bathroom, there's no question those products are much safer now, are made with less toxic ingredients than they were five, 10 years ago. Mm-hmm. Uh, it feels to me like microplastics is, is at a similar point. It, what, what science has just started to demonstrate is the real problem with plastics is, is you know, not just that there's this giant North Pacific garbage, garbage patch and that wildlife around the world is being impacted by plastics. And as Canadians, of course, we know this. I mean, how many, honestly, how many Tim Hortons coffee lids can you watch blowing down the street before, mm-hmm. before we do something about it? You know, plastic is not just a problem because of the fact that it's out there in the environment wrecking havoc. What science is now showing is that, is that plastic never really breaks down. The, the average Tim Hortons coffee lid, when it winds up in the environment, just gets pounded into smaller and smaller particles by photo degradation, by the action of waves, by, by, uh, by the passage of time but that your average plastic item becomes these, these microscopic particles that are then so light, they get, they're now getting sucked into uh, uh, the water cycle, getting sucked up into clouds, coming down again in the rain. Uh, they're so buoyant that, uh, that they're, they're present in countless numbers in, in uh, fresh water and saltwater water columns and in, in those, those uh, ecosystems and these microplastic particles are winding up in our bodies and uh and having negative effects on our health so uh, you know i had this idea last year that maybe i could test my, myself for microplastic particles so that's what i did so I, I designed a series of experiments that became one of the first people in the world to for what it's worth to find microplastic particles in, in their own body um i kind of copied some of the emerging science from the academic literature and then wrote about it in the Globe and Mail. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I not only found microplastic particles in my own uh, poo, but I actually designed a series of experiments over a week where I tried to crank up mm-hmm. my daily exposure to plastic to see whether that had an impact on the number of particles in my gut. And it really did. So for a few days, for instance, I only ate plastic shrink-wrapped food, things like ramen noodles and, uh, you know, microwavable plastic uh, uh, soup mm-hmm. containers. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I made sure to only wear polyester fleeces and uh, articles of clothing. Uh, I, I left, before I, let, before I ate my food, pl- microplastic is now so prevalent in household dust. Mm. I found a scientific paper that showed that the length of time you leave your food on the counter before you eat it really drives the number of mi- microplastic particles that you then ingest. So oh, wow. before I ate my food, I left my food on the counter for four hours and uh, just let it kind of, you know, uh, let the microplastic particles be deposited. So you know, I, I think what's going to happen to the whole plastic debate in the next mm-hmm. few years is that plastic is going to become a health issue. It's going to transmogrify from an environmental issue into a health issue mm-hmm. in the same way that 
the pollution issue has done in, in, in other, in other uh, realms. Mm -hmm. Do we have um, sort of good science on, or at least predictions of the long-term health effects of, of microplastic accumulation in our bodies and in wildlife and in the environment? Is there, do you have, do you have a good sense of that? The, the specific, that specific question with respect to microplastics is just scientists around the world are just getting to that now. So the first scientific paper just came out showing microplastics in placentas, human placentas, right? Just came out showing uh, microplastics in uh, the human bloodstream. Uh, we do know two things about microplastics from older scientific literatures. So there's, you know, going right back to the industrial revolution where you had whole armies of young women, uh, usually, working at their sewing machines in, uh, in industrial-sized uh, garment factories. We, we know the impact. You know, medical science knows the impact of inhaling particles and what that does to your lungs. We know that from women who've worked for the last couple hundred years in factories, you know, in, in the developed world, in, in uh, in uh, Southeast Asia at the, at the moment, for instance, working in these massive garment factories and they inhale garment fibers all day long. There's a whole literature around, of course, coal miners. Mm -hmm. What happens when you work in a mine and you inhale mineralized particles all day long? There's, there's, a, there's a, a physical impact of those, of those particles in the lungs that's incredibly, it's just devastating. Mm -hmm. uh, we're inhaling microplastic particles on, on, a, on a regular basis. And so there's this, there's this first question, of, okay, what does the physical impact of that particle do when it's lodged in the lungs? Then there's a second kind of older scientific literature, not, not that old, I mean, again, going back to what I was saying about toxic chemicals dating back to the early 2000s, we know a lot about the negative biological impact of the, of the chemicals in plastics phthalates, BPA, uh, 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 in many cases, flame retardant chemicals are, are present in plastics. Uh, we know that these chemicals are hormonally active. We know that they mimic estrogen in the human body. It's well established now that there are links between these chemicals and uh, uh, hormonally triggered cancers like breast cancer prostate cancer, these things uh, where we've seen huge increases in the prevalence of these diseases in recent years. There's no question that one of the reasons is our lifetime exposure to estrogenic chemicals from the environment. So the answer to your question is, you know, has, has science put all of this together yet in terms of microplastics in the human body uh, that's coming quickly? Mm -hmm. And, and the, the kind of building blocks of that analysis are already laid with these, with these older uh, scientific lines of inquiry. Yeah. So is it sort of a foregone conclusion that you, you think we'll have some sort of uh, definitely national, but potentially international, you know, policy apparatus for managing the future of microplastic regulation in the world? Oh, Absolutely. I mean, I'll, I'll give you, I'll give you, a, you know, I, I wrote about this in the Globe, but I'll give you just one example of the kind of, I mean, I talked to one very concerned scientist from Rutgers University who was looking at, uh, she was looking at, she was experimenting with mice 
But of course, one reason that we experiment with the scientists experiment with mice is because mammalian systems are, when it comes to uh, scientific data, what happens in one mammal is often very similar to what happens in another mammal. Uh, so she, she was looking at the extent to which microplastic particles could be ingested by, by a mouse mom, passed through the blood system, uh, absorbed, across, uh, absorbed uh, into the placenta of that mouse mom, and then wind up in the, in the body of, the, of, of, that, of that mouse fetus. And what she found is that these microplastic particles are very easily absorbed, very easily absorbed right through the mom, in, through the placenta, into the developing fetus. And then uh, in that critical period of time in development, when uh, that fetus uh, is, the, the blood-brain barrier is forming, these tiny plastic particles were winding up in the, in the brain capsule of, of that uh, young, young mouse. And then when the blood-brain barrier gets formed, uh, getting locked into the brain capsule of that young mouse. So this researcher at Rutgers was thinking about uh, the possible links between microplastics and Alzheimer's in humans. Mm -hmm. It seems clear from her experiments that, that we're going to find that the human brain that we're all carrying around microplastic particles in our heads. And of course we use plastics as electric insulators because uh, electric impulse plastics impair electric impulses. So if you have, if you have plastic particles embedded in the human brain, impairing neural impulses, maybe there's a link to Alzheimer's. So that's now what this researcher is investigating. So that's just one taste of where I think this is going. Yeah. Uh, and I think the plastics industry has rocks in its head globally if it thinks that it's going to keep exponentially, if it's going to get away with exponentially increasing plastics production around the world year over year. I mean, I don't think there isn't enough room on this planet. There's not enough room in our bodies to accommodate the waste plastic crap that's going to ensue. Uh, and this incredible acceleration of plastic production globally has got to stop. I mean, you're one of the, in writing about this topic, I mean, the, the, probably the most stunning statistic that I uncovered is, is that half the plastic ever produced has been made in the last 15 years. Yeah. It's, crazy. it's just, it's just stunning. And, and the, and the, and the plastic industry harbors the ambition of continued exponential increase of plastic production. I mean, there's not enough room in this planet to accommodate that. Uh, let alone in our bodies. So I, you know, I, 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 I think this is going to be a huge issue moving forward, and it's going to transform the way that we interact with plastics as as a society. Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely alarming. Yeah, yeah. Listening to you um, talk about all this, it makes me wonder, you know, about your own kind of feelings of anxiety or or stress about doing these kind of experiments on yourself and, and finding all these chemicals in your body? Like, how does, how do you deal with that kind of um, anxiety around um, being surrounded by pollution? Yeah. Um, well, I mean, first of all, I, I, uh, I'm, I'm quite optimistic, maybe foolishly. So I, I remain quite optimistic. And one of the things about getting a bit older is that, you know, you can start to see the progress that's occurred in your own lifetime. 
Mm-hmm. And, you know, if I think about the incredible positive societal transformations that have happened in my lifetime, that's the kind of thing that gives me a lot of hope and, and a lot of optimism for the future. If I think about, you know, the changes that have happened, uh, you know, in terms of LGBTQ uh, uh, issues mm-hmm. and, and the, 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 the increased equality enjoyed by um, the LGBTQ community in, in my lifetime. I mean, that's, that's mm-hmm. incredible. Mm-hmm. And if I think about uh, other social issues that have moved in a positive direction in my lifetime, uh, there have been a lot. And I first started going, I first started paying attention to environmental questions in the 1970s. Uh, not long after Silent Spring was written, and and the environmental discussion was marginal. Mm-hmm. It was fringe, right? I mean, I remember I, when I was an undergraduate at the University of Guelph, and I wanted to start eating organic food. The only place you get organic food in Guelph, Ontario, at that time, which is a pretty, you know, I mean, Guelph is a pretty sandal wearing town, <laughs> right? Like, like yeah. now. Yeah. But like in the 1980s, I mean, the only place you get organic food in Guelph, Ontario was the food co-op, which was in this dimly lit kind of dank room underneath this other place. You had to go there. And like, you know, I remember volunteering there Tuesday nights and like I was the only person there. <laughs> like it was like organic food and every, everything that sort of swirled around environmental concerns was marginal. Mm-hmm. Not that long ago in my lifetime. And now all of a sudden. I mean, not all of a sudden. I mean, it's built over decades. I mean, whether it's plastic or whether it's climate change or whether it's uh, protected areas, you know, the incredible aspirations now that are locked into global conven- conventions when it comes to biodiversity mm-hmm. protection. I mean, the concern for the environment, the connection between environmental concerns and our own per- and, our, and the well-being of humanity is now a central concern of politics uh, at every level in every country in the world uh, and a daily presence uh, in, in news media. And, you know, like, is everything going right? Of course not. I mean, the, the challenges are enormous. Uh, in, you know, there's lots of areas of environmental policy where things are still going haywire. Mm-hmm. But, you know, to use some specific examples, you know, BPA isn't in baby bottles now. It was 10 years ago when my kids were smaller because, right. and the reason it's out is because people demanded it and that they got, they got the governments moved. You know, I'm enormously optimistic about uh, the, the progress I see in the area of climate change at the moment. And I have no doubt that uh, within a few years, our country, you know, other countries around the world are going to be on the necessary pathway to net zero. We're going to figure it out. We are figuring it out. And and that progress is accelerating. Well, that's a great kind of segue into maybe talking about um, this, this new role you've taken on as president of the Canadian Institute for Climate Choices. Um, can you tell us a little bit about um, that organization and, and what your role there involves? Sure. So I'm, I'm uh, working with, uh, for the past six months or so, I've been working with this fabulous team uh, spread right across the country. I mean, we're the largest climate change policy research organization in the country. We don't just look at, we, we sort of do the whole 
the whole uh, enchilada of uh, of climate policy. So we we yes, we look at carbon reduction and the best the best ways to reduce carbon as quickly as possible. But we also look at climate change adaptation and clean growth. So the economic arguments, you know, how are we going to ensure that Canada prospers in this accelerating carbon transition globally? How are we going to make sure that uh, the disproportionately impacted demographics of Canadians, communities in our country uh, have a, a just transition? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, it's so we we in any given week we uh, release research papers on a variety of topics. At the moment, we're we're trying to uh, trying to do what we can to make sure that the 2030 emissions reduction plan that the federal government's going to release in March is is effective and gets gets Canada on the road to a 40 to 45 percent reduction of uh, GHGs uh, by by 2030, which is our uh, which is our international commitment. Uh, we're engaged in the, uh, I think, uh, I think ultimately what will be a very fruitful discussion around the national adaptation, a new national adaptation strategy. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's clear that extreme weather events are more common in our country. That uh, that we're seeing more flooding in places like British Columbia. Uh, Canadian communities are being impacted by the climate change that's already baked into the system, and so we need to change the way we build infrastructure. Mm-hmm. Uh, we need to change the way that we think about government investment to make sure that uh, those investments create communities that are more resilient to, to, to climate change and, and that, that protect all Canadians, mm-hmm. uh, including in remote communities. Uh, and we're also engaged, uh, our clean growth team is engaged in this whole kind of accelerating discussion that the, pri- the private sector is happening, uh, is, is having. Uh, related to uh, risk disclosure when it comes to climate change, how climate change impacts on their balance sheets. Mm-hmm. Um, what does actual green investment look like? Uh, if you're a chartered bank in this country, uh, how can you not just make good on your own corporate net zero commitments, but in, in terms of your investments and, and working with your mortgage holders, for instance, how can you help trigger the necessary behavioral changes uh, or support the, you know, more like support the, the changes that Canadians want to make uh, to, to help get this country on a path to net zero. Uh, so we're, we're engaged in kind of policy discussions, both kind of proximate and short term, and, and also trying to keep our eye on the horizon and think about approaches that, that, that need to be implemented, you know, decades down the road to make sure that we, we get to where we need to go by 2050. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And so this, this, um, this particular item you mentioned about sort of financial disclosures, that was something that, you know, has become kind of a global topic, the World Economic Forum and the IPCC COP26. This has been something yeah. that's been discussed. What, what is the, Kind of mood in Canada in terms of of that type of sort of ramping up that type of um, you know risk disclosure. You know, well, I, I can tell you things have dramatically changed just in the last six months uh, for the better. So I, I was in I was in Glasgow uh, in November at the COP, mm-hmm. and and what we saw at that COP was uh, you know was an avalanche of announcements 
from the world's biggest corporations committing to net zero, committing their capital to, you know, aligning their capital with net zero. And so the, the, the fact that private capital is now engaged with the necessity of net zero is brand new mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and a huge step forward. And anecdotally, I can tell you that our organization, you know, is the primary climate change research outfit in the country. I mean, we're getting calls almost on a daily basis now from, from different levels of government, from companies around the country saying, hey, like, we get it now. We get this net zero thing. We, we were, we've been convinced that this carbon transition globally is not some sort of flash in the pan. It's not going away. It's a fundamental shift. So what do we need to do to prosper in this new reality? Uh, so just in the last six months, I would say, um, the climate change discussion has exploded beyond environmental groups, governments, and the private sector is now fully engaged. Uh, you know, it wasn't that long ago that you know, you're at the annual United Nations climate change COP and most climate change discussions were confined to you know, ministers of the environment, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. environmental policy geeks, and you know, maybe a thin slice of the population that were super duper interested in this issue. I mean, it's now far broader than that. Mm-hmm. And and so what, why do you think um, now that things are, are starting to move, like you say, and sort of t- talking about the last six months, like, is there a particular kind of turning point or something you can, you can kind of identify or why do you think things are moving more quickly now? I think a few things have happened. I think the causality of, of, of climate change and extreme weather events has now been uh, nailed down. So the science has gotten better. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, you know, I th- uh, not for nothing, Time Magazine named uh, mm-hmm. the two scientists, the two drivers of this new field of attribution science as, mm-hmm. as being uh, amongst its top 100 people of the year. Mm-hmm. The rise of attribution science ha- has been enormously significant and you see its impact in the last IPCC report. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, it, it, chapter. <laughs> yeah, it wasn't, wasn't there before. Yeah, I mean, scientists are cautious yeah. by nature. <laughs> mm-hmm. So it wasn't that long ago, like in fact, last year, it wasn't that long ago that most scientists you saw being interviewed about wildfires, flooding, would be very comfortable, you know, talking at the kind of 30,000 foot level about the modeled likely notional impacts of climate change. But then if you, but then if you start asking them, okay, well, is that massive wildfire over there because of climate change, they get all squeamish and they, they, they sort of hedge. Mm -hmm. And there was this, there was this disconnect in the scientific literature and, you know, people would see it on the daily, on their daily news. And whenever scientists were interviewed about climate change, there's this bizarre disconnect about the kind of theoretical impacts of climate change. And the actual accelerating extreme weather events that people are, that people are now witnessing all around them, mm-hmm. and that gap has now been closed. So attribution science now allows scientists to say with confidence mm-hmm. 
not only that climate change is impacting weather systems globally in a kind of a larger sense, but yes, climate change is responsible for that wildfire over there that burned down, lit in British Columbia. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and you see that change in the IPCC report this year. This, this year, you know, the, the uh, International Energy Agency report that all the really, uh, the, the IEA has now shifted its mm-hmm. outlook when it comes to, you know, how, how quickly renewable energies are, co- are going to come on when oil use is going to peak. That's enormously significant. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, so the evidence and the science has gotten better. And I think has crystallized this year in a way that we haven't seen in the past. Uh, I think that as a result, and we actually did a lot of polling on this last year, uh, from our organization, Canadians and people around the world are, are connecting in a way they never have before these extreme weather events and climate change. Mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. so there's a proximity now getting back to, you know, one of the first topics we talked about there, there's a, there's a, right. there's a kind of a salience mm-hmm. of the climate change discussion to people's daily lives. That wasn't there even a year ago. Mm-hmm. Um, and maybe, maybe a last thing I'll say is uh, on the flip side, jurisdictions like Europe, companies around the world who are actually first movers when it comes to a, a, low, a net zero economy. It turns out, you know, from a, from a sort of private sector profitability point of view, uh, I think what's flipped the private sector discussion is the realization that the, uh, the investment environment around some of these low carbon technologies and, and the inevitability of this low carbon future means that there's money to be made right. mm-hmm. in, in these areas. And, and, and a lot of companies now buy this and there's actually, uh, you know, they have investment opportunities that they didn't before. And all of a sudden, you know, Tesla just in the last couple of months is one of the, t- for the first time ever, we see electric, we, we see an electric vehicle brand amongst the top five best selling cars in the world. Mm-hmm. And I think we're going to see, you know, the EV the electric vehicle transformation happen far more quickly than has been predicted. So that, that kind of shift in the investment environment is, is, is new. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's, that's really interesting, especially hearing your perspective on the attribution science piece. Cause I, you know, as a climate scientist, I've been seeing this evolving and it's, it's nice to see that, that, that connection is is being recognized now beyond kind of the scientific community. So that's that's really encouraging to see. Um, Stu, maybe I'll pass it over to you for to uh, I, we have just a little bit of time left with you, Rick. So um. yeah, yeah. So I have a, a pop culture question for you. I was wondering if <laughs> if you have seen uh, Don't Look Up yet, the movie Don't Look Up, <laughs> and whether. If yes, uh, do any particular parts uh, resonate with you as somebody who's immersed in these issues? Yeah, I love that movie. And I love the uh, the little blooper reel at the end with uh, Meryl Streep, uh, you know, riffing on her on her some of her funny monologues throughout. You know, I I, I thought you know as an allegory, it, it really worked. I mean, the, the and I, I wrote about this actually in McLean's a couple of weeks ago. I, I, the, the one difference, of course, between, uh, you know, spoiler alert, uh, you know, the Earth being destroyed in, in one dramatic moment by a giant asteroid 
one of the ways in which that doesn't work as an analogy for climate change, of course, is that the climate change is not going to destroy human civilization. Climate change is not going to destroy, physically destroy this planet. What climate change is doing and is going to increasingly do is hurt a lot of people. And so the question with climate change is not whether the human species is going to survive, of course, like we are. The question is, is who, who are going to be the casualties along the way before we figure this out? And, and, and what climate change is doing is, is exacerbating existing inequalities in our society. Mm-hmm. So uh, there's actually a, 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 there's an inquest on this going on at the moment, but, but what, what's clear from early indications is that the 500 or so uh, people that died in British Columbia as a result of the heat waves last summer, that terrible heat dome. Mm-hmm. What we do know uh, so far is that a disproportionate number of those folks were elderly citizens. So climate change is going to disproportionately impact the elderly, the poor, uh, uh, already vulnerable communities, uh, you know, racialized communities, indigenous communities, uh, you know, like lit in British Columbia. So I love Don't Look Up. I'm glad that so many people have seen it. I'm, I'm glad that it's sparked a discussion. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, we need to bear in mind the kind of, the, the fact that the climate change, the climate change discussion is going to be a multi-decade slog. Yeah. Uh, not a, you know, all in, all, all in one moment, fiery, dramatic finish. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. So it's difficult to capture the the nuances in uh, a pop culture <laughs> phenomenon like that, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, and I was chatting with a group of friends, and some people actually didn't know there was a it was an allegory for for climate change. Uh, they just kind of just, well, they you know obviously COVID could potentially um, fit in there as well. So I mean, a lot a lot of the other things that movie rang true, right? I mean, the political. Mm-hmm. finagling and the uh you know the crazy media coverage and the uh you know the sort of baked in human inability to grapple with worst case scenarios mm-hmm. um mm-hmm. so there's a lot there's a lot there's a lot right about that movie yeah yeah mm-hmm. Just maybe to kind of think about the coming year, 2022, you, you wrote a, an article recently about making climate change boring. And so maybe you can kind of give us your final thoughts for you know, what you're looking to see in the near future with respect to climate change policy in Canada. Sure. So I, you know, what I meant by making climate change boring is, is one of my hopes for 2022. I mean, if you think about public policies, quite often it's, it's the public policies that are working, that are non-contentious, that never appear in the media and that mm-hmm. we don't argue about. Like if the public policy is working, quite often it's, it just, you know, it just happens day over day. And, you know, mm-hmm. so boring means predictable. Boring means, <laughs> uh, boring means no screaming daily headlines to cause people anxiety. And that's my hope for climate change. Uh, if you look at other countries like the UK, mm-hmm. which has reduced uh, GHG emissions by 50% mm-hmm. since 1990, yeah. what we see in other countries, mostly European countries, but not, not just Europe, uh, these nations have settled into an annual rhythm now 
of setting a plan, making sure that plan is trickled down to different sectors of society. So people, so different industrial sectors, different levels of government know what their uh, carbon reduction contribution needs to be. The country's got a plan. The plan is executed every year. Every year, the country assesses progress against that plan. The plan is tweaked, and then they repeat. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So there's this kind of boring methodology that they've settled into in terms of making good on their net zero commitments. And that's where we need to get to in our country. And that's where I think we're going to start getting to this year. So the first big moment is going to be the federal government's 2030 emissions reduction plan. Uh, we're going to see a national adaptation strategy, uh, I hope, with a kind of wholesale reconfiguration of how governments are thinking about uh, infrastructure investment uh, right across the country. That's due out in mm -hmm. the fall. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So my hope is by the time we hit Groundhog Day <laughs> 2023, that uh, Canadians have confidence that our country has a plan, a doable action plan, and we're just getting on with it, as mm -hmm. opposed to arguing about, you know, whether this whole carbon thing is going to go away or not, or, you know, what, what our contribution in a big, in this big world should be, or, uh, you know, do we really need to do this? Uh, like we're mm -hmm. just getting on with it. And uh, mm -hmm. this issue is a lot, is a lot more boring come this time next year. Well, I hope so. I hope that's what we can look forward to in the coming year. Well, thank you so much for, for joining us today. It was great to kind of hear your perspectives on a variety of environmental issues. And, um, and maybe we can touch base in a year and see, <laughs> talk about progress that's, that's hopefully been made on, on the climate change um, sure. policy make this like an like a annual Groundhog Day ritual. <laughs> yeah. We'll just yeah. do it again and again and again. <laughs> right, right. It would yeah. be appropriate, right? <laughs> I'll, see, I'll see if we can license uh, I Got You, Babe. We can start off with that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Thanks so much for your time, Rick. We really appreciate it. Thank you.